right, all right. Hey, welcome, welcome, family. Welcome, TLC. Welcome, friends, uh, to Sunday worship. We're so glad to have you. So glad to have you guys out here um, with us today. My name is Tony. You guys did not know. I'm the pastor here. Glad to have you. We pray that God's word speaks to you today um, as we come. So let's, uh, let's get started. You know, we are in this series. We're moving towards actually the end of the series on uh, the theme is a call to holiness in a hostile world, okay? And what, what, that, what that encompasses is this picture of Christians living in a, in, in a time period, in a world where it's hostile to what they believe. The narrative, the culture, the, the phrasing, the, the times today, it's very hostile to the Christian lifestyle, Christian words, Christian uh, being. So to live in a world like this, you can either compromise and kind of blend in or you can stand out and stand for the Lord. And so this, this series is all about how do I live a holy life, a distinct, a unique, a sacred life in the midst of the hostility that we face in the world today. And it's written by uh, the Apostle Peter, this letter he wrote to a bunch of Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, who, by the way, is persecuting Christians to a degree that you have never possibly even seen today. Maybe in a third world place, maybe in another place where outside of our country in Western America, but they have been persecuted in such a way where it's tremendously hostile. They were, they were persecuted to such a degree where they were, they were made toys in the Colosseum. For, uh, they, made, they, made, they were made sport when they would throw these Christians into the Colosseum to do what? To be played by, uh, to play with by um, lions and tigers, right? right before the gladiators came out and killed themselves. They would be used as kindle for lighting of uh, a dinner party, burn alive, simply because they needed light, and Christians would be the body that did that, right? They live in a very hostile world, and Peter comes into this place, and he writes them this letter, and they're trying to figure out, like, how do we blend in? Do we compromise? Do we kind of pretend like we're not believers in front of people and kind of live secret lives here? What do we do? And Peter comes in, and he says, this is how you ought to live. You were called to live holy lives in a hostile world. And we've talked about a various amount of things. And how do you live holy in such a broken world? We shared about how to live holy, you ought to embody holiness by taking in God's word. You see, there are a couple things you can take in every day of your life. You can take in malice, deceit, slander, envy, hypocrisy, things that you see online all the time, talking about these things, things that forces you to slander others, things that forces you to compare to others. You can take all these things in and just fill yourself with this toxicity, or you can fill yourself with the word of God, the life-giving word of God, all right? We talked about you, you epitomize holiness with your submission. You know how crazy it is that Peter tells his Christians here, in the midst of being burned alive, being persecuted, being hunted down, he calls them to live a life of holiness by submission to the very people who are hunting you. It's not that you agree with them. It's not that you do everything they want you to do. It's not that you dishonor God, but that you would submit to the rule that they have, even if it costs you your life. Crazy, right? But that's how you stand out in a very hostile world. That's how you exemplify, you epitomize your Christian life, that Jesus Christ is your Lord. He begins to talk about, he continues to talk about, you exemplify holiness in your marriage. 
how marriage back then was really a contract to produce legacy in children and heirs, right? Back then, they would marry their wife for heirs. They'll have their concubine for pleasure. And Christians come in and says, actually, our marriage is to honor our spouse, to bless our spouse, to walk with our spouse. And it's such a radical picture of marriage that to to view a Christian marriage in, in, in the backdrop of this crazy world, it stands out. It's like, that's what marriage looks like? That's, that's a very backwards way. That's a very weird way to honor and to live in marriage. But that's how Christians did it. You express holiness by living righteously. Not just having this inward secretive lifestyle that you know, like, oh, yeah, it's, just, it's what I believe in. It's all, all that stuff. But you live righteously inwardly and then also outwardly. But you express it outwardly to the way you, the, what you stand for, what you hold firm. You see, all of these things, which Peter is calling the Christians to do, is simply to do what? To stand out as beacons of light in a hostile world, as beacons of reality, of something greater, something better, something that's transformative in a world that forces you to, com- uh, to compromise, to blend in, to just ride the waves and die. Peter calls us to do what? To think bigger, to choose holiness. Choose distinctness. Last week I talked about choosing suffering. You encompass holiness when you choose to suffer. Not, when it, not, not that you're willing to or just, just willing to embrace it, but that you are willing to choose to suffer. Like what person chooses to suffer? A Christian would. They would. Not by their power, not because of vanity, but because of what their God has done, their Lord and Savior has done. So they choose to suffer. All of this to be a light. You know why sometimes people don't ask us why we have hope in the way we do? Because when they look at us, there really is nothing different about the Christian life in the Western America than a regular life. We kind of just blend in. We kind of just move the same direction. We may kind of like spark here and there, do something kind of awkward or different, but ultimately we just blend in with them. Blend in with everybody. And Peter says, in the midst of all this hostility, you're called to stand out. You're called to have a distinction. You're called to be set apart. Would you live that way? And today, as I uh, share the second to last message here, is how do you live holy lives in a hostile world? The answer is you set your eyes on heaven. You live with your eyes set on heaven, eyes set on eternity, eyes thinking about what's to come, not focusing on today, right now, this moment, okay? So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to hit this passage up. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Uh, Jeremiah uh, read that to us already. So let me read it one more time, and then uh, we'll pray, and we'll get going here. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 11 of your, your Bibles. Open it up. Here we go. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-control so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in his various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 
Let's bow our heads, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this word today. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are sitting here, the Lord, that they will walk away with its truth. Father God, they will walk away convicted, transformed, moved to live a life, oh Lord, that honors you, that recognizes you, that exemplifies you, that embodies you. Father, I pray that we will not be counted lost in this time, that we will be counted as sons and daughters that bears the name of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come and just be with us. Holy Spirit, would you come and anoint me to speak your word and worthy as I am. That it will be spoken with your voice, your message, not my own. May you, O Lord, be honored and glorified this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore. The end is near, therefore. You know, when we hear the word, the end is near, what's the picture that comes to your mind? Right, some crazy, like, shaggy hair dude thing on the street says, you know, the end is coming. The end, or you, you, you think about all those, um, those doomsday activists that says, you know, tomorrow the world is going to end. And you're just, you're just laughing, right? Because you're just wondering, is this true? Is this real? What's going on with those guys, right? But what Peter is saying here, he's not, he's not just declaring the end of the world and creating this kind of, like, weird atmosphere. He's, he's saying is this, if God is who he says he is, and that's the first question I need you guys to really Again, quite, if, you, if you are just dancing around with this relationship with Jesus Christ, I need you to ask that question for your life first. Don't, don't worry about the, the social issues. Don't worry about the things that you are dis, in disagreement with. The first question you have to ask yourself is, if God is who he says he is and what he's done is true, then when he speak about the end is coming, when he speak that the end is coming, if that's all true, then it's smart, not crazy, to adjust your life to it, right? If he says this is who he is, then he says the end is coming, therefore do this. It's wise to actually adjust your life, not to sit there and think, oh, he's crazy. He's God. If he came back from the dead, if he resurrected, if all he speaks of is true, then it is not crazy for you to adjust your life. He says be clear-minded. Think this through. Don't be a fool. Don't cloud, your, don't cloud your thinking at this moment. I want you to be clear. If this is true, and that's the question you have to wrestle with, if this is true, then this is how you ought to be living. Right? It's actually crazy if God is who he says he is and you go and dive your life living a life as if he's not returning. That's the crazy thing. That's the insane thing. If you know that this is who he says he is, this is everything he, he says he is, and you decide in your life, this moment, to live it as if that's not going to happen, that's the crazy thing, right? Some of you guys are thinking like, oh, no, well, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, right? And he still ain't back yet. So uh, Peter is a liar. He's not, actually. He's not. You know that even Jesus himself didn't know the time that he's going to return back? Therefore, you should live as if he's going to come back at any minute, Okay? What, 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 what Peter said, and in 2 Peter, it says this too, you know, like all those scoffers who look at me, it says, you know, the end, it's been about 30 years since Peter said the end is coming, and it's like, well, the, the end is delayed in coming. It seems like it's a long time in coming here. And Peter says what? Don't be a fool. One day to the Lord is like a thousand, and a thousand is like one. So technically, if, you, if we take this literally, this could have only been like two days right now. 
that God has just left. But the, the, the issue here is this. When Peter says the end is near, it's the same as when I say the end is near right now. We live with the anticipation that it's going to happen. We're both right. Peter said it 2,000 years ago. I'm saying it now. We're both right. I'll give you an example of what I mean by this, okay? And, and I'm pretty sure it'll clear it up for you guys, all you married men or guys like this, right? So I have my best buddy. My, my best buddy is Min, and he always tries to get me in trouble. He doesn't do it intentionally, but he just, he just tries to get me in trouble, especially with my wife. It's just, it's just natural for him. I don't know why he does it, but he just naturally wants to get me in trouble with my wife. So we'll, we'll, we'll be doing something. We'll be doing something, and I'm waiting for Trisha to come, right? And he'd be saying, come on, man, let's, let's go and let's just play for another 10 minutes. I'm like, hey, man, she, she can come back at any moment right now. Like, I, I can't. He's like, no, she's not. Just, just one game. It's not going to hurt anybody. I said, no, she's going to come back at any minute right now, right? And if she comes back and I'm on that thing, there's going to be dire consequences for me, right? <laughs> Cannot, right? And so what happens? So he's so he's, he'll, he'll always like, fine. Like, oh, fine. He always says, like, if I ever get married, this is never going to happen to me. I was like, yeah, if you ever get married. But then if you'll see what happens, right? So, you know, we sit there, and 10 minutes go by. She hasn't come back. 20 minutes comes by. She hasn't come. And he's like, bro, it's been 20 minutes. It's been 20 minutes. We could have played, like, three games by now. I was like, I'm still not wrong, right? I'm still not wrong because if I would have choose to act, and if she shows up and I'm not ready, one of us is going to die, right? And it's not you. It's going to be me, right? So either way, Trisha is coming. So you got to live every minute as if she's going to come in the exact same way. Okay, you guys, you guys follow me? Right? In the exact same way, when, we, when Peter says the end is near, therefore, this is how you should live. The end is near. It's not for you to say, well, you know, like, like, like when, you know, like he can, he doesn't mean he's going to come back right now. I can like just do my thing for a little bit and then kind of towards the end of my life, kind of fix it up a little bit and we should be all good to go, right? See, that's the attitude, that's the mindset that tells you, that reveals actually to yourself that you really don't believe that he's coming. And you actually don't even really believe that he is who he says he is. The end is near. Christians, the way we live holy in a hostile world is that we live with the anticipation of eternity. We live with the anticipation, with the mindset, with the focus, with our eyes set on eternity. Not in this moment, but what's to come, what will come. So Peter says, the end is near, therefore... And we're going to lay down a couple of things he calls us to think about and to live out to show us, that, to show that we are living with the eternity in mind. But the word therefore, I want, to, I want to just hit that up for you guys real fast. The word therefore is a segue, okay, to some sort of action. You know, if you see the word therefore in the Bible, that means that everything before it was this principle, this truth, this reality that was laid down. Therefore, this is how you should act. It's a very powerful word, therefore. In the Christian life, the word therefore, it gives us coherence. Because why? The reason I live like this is because of this. This truth, this reality, therefore, I live this way. Christianity worldview has a coherence to it. You may not agree to what it says, but it has a right to say it. Because this is what happened. This is the truth. 
therefore, this is what we do, right? See, if you don't have, see, the, the way that always bothers me among the way people argue or talk about things is like, this is wrong. Okay, why? Just because it is. What is the truth? What is the foundation? What is the thing that led you to therefore say this is wrong? It just is. No, that's incoherent. I remember a student of mine uh, during one of the shootings, right, uh, in, the, in the school. He says, I'm just so sick of people holding guns and shooting up kids like this, right? And, you know, part of me said, I want to say, yes, I, I totally agree. But, you know, because I knew that he wasn't a believer, I knew that he was a staunch atheist, so I asked him, why? I said, why are you sick of it? He said, aren't you? I said, I am totally sick of it. I, I, I do not like to see children die, right? And I cannot imagine walking into a classroom, even as a police officer, seeing dead children on the ground. I can't, when, even when Seth plays dead, it kind of scares me a little bit, right? I can't even imagine seeing real dead children. He says, yeah, do you get me? I said, no, no, I get me, right? Because the reason I hate this is because I know the truth is that we're made in the image of God. Therefore, we should not take people who are made in the image of God. But what is your truth? How do you go from survival of the fittest, therefore, don't kill anybody? How do you, how do you work that out in your system of life? How do you all of a sudden have that? He couldn't answer it, right? But he just says, you don't get it. But no, I do get it. The issue is you don't have a coherent worldview to live by. So the best you have is incoherency. You borrow, you borrow from, especially you borrow from the Christian worldview and you deny its creator. Friend, right? That's what I do in my elite classes, by the way. It's been 18 years working there. I spend maybe like 10 minutes teaching and 20 minutes chatting, right? So, but they come back, so, you know. So here's Peter. He says, the end is near. So for you guys, this is, my, this is my plea to you, okay, is that you stop living with this mindset that this is it. This is all there is. So I'm just going to just do my thing and, you know, maybe towards my last breath or just in case something really bad happens, I'll pray the prayer at the end of my deathbed and everything will be good, okay? I mean, because I, I, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, so I can just kind of do my own thing for a while. My plea to you, sons and daughters that bear Christ's name, is this. You live with your eyes set on eternity, and if your eyes are on eternity, if this is the end is near, this is how you ought to live. Look at verse 7. He says this. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So the first thing he says is this. This is the way to live with eyes on eternity. You live a life of great prayer. You see, if, if you know that heaven is real, if you know that there is something more after you take your last breath on earth, if you know that you're not just going to go to the ground six feet under, eaten by worms, and that's it, or if you know that the moment you close your eyes, you will open your eyes into eternity, if this is true, the end is coming, you are to live a life of great prayer. Everybody say prayer. See, here's, here's the problem about the Christian life here. In our days, there's so much distraction. You're, you're so distracted in every possible way. You're distracted because um, with the things around you, you have so many things to do, so many things to attend to, so many things to get complete, and there don't, doesn't seem to be enough time to do what? To pray. 
You have plenty of time to serve. You have plenty of time to work. You have plenty of time to go from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You have plenty of time to meet this person, that person. Plenty of time to finish up projects. All these things, but you do not seem to have enough time to pray. The Bible says, because the end is near, be clear-minded. And opposed to what? Busy-minded. Sober. Uh, another word is sober-minded. And opposed to being drunk-mindedness. Prayer becomes a second thing to you. It takes second seat to what you're doing in life. Isn't that true? You have no problem spending hours on certain things. But when is the last time you spent just as much hours praying as you did working on a project? Let me tell you something about prayer. When you recognize, when you, when you are clear-minded, it means that you recognize that the, what is the most, utmost importance in your life is eternity with God, is, is your time with God. When you realize that I will see God one day, what begins to be most important in your life is not collecting seashells, is not retiring early, is not getting this project done and that project done, is actually being with God. Imagine how awkward it would be Best case scenario, you're a Christian, but you've been kind of really lazy. You end up passing away, knock on wood, and you stand before the Lord of hosts, and you haven't spoken to him in months. How awkward would it be when you stand before God and he says, hey, son? You're like, um, yeah. What's up, Father? How you been? Right? Because you haven't had this time where you've even talked with him. And, and the best prayer that you threw out to him was probably doing a meal that you were just kind of saying without even thinking about what you were saying. How awkward would it be to be with the Lord of eternity and knowing that you spent the majority of your time here on earth not with him, but being distracted, not clear-minded in the world around you. That's a good case scenario for those who are young in faith, immature, but still a believer. The worst case scenario, the worst case scenario is this. that you stand before the Lord of hosts and he says, I've never known you. I've never known you. But, but God, I've, I've, I've never known you. We've never even talked. But I did all these things. Yeah, you served, you pushed buttons, you prayed. I mean, you, you didn't pray. You pushed buttons, you took out chairs. It was great. Everyone appreciates you, but I never knew you. He says, be clear-minded so that you can pray for the sake of your prayers. If our eyes are set on heaven, we live today with a focus on what's most important, our time with God. Our time with him. Right? How, how sacred is that time with you? Would you do everything you can to fight for it? Would you, would you make sure that no one else has that time because it's yours and your Father, yours and your Lord, yours and your God? Do, do, do you push things around? It says, no, I can't, man. That's, that's my time. I can't, right? And you don't have to sound holy about it. You just say, I, just, I, can't, I can't do it that time. Sorry. But we move things around. We, 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 we like, oh, yeah, we can compromise that. And one compromise leads to another, leads to another. And after a while, it's been months since you last talked to him. See, if our eyes are set in heaven, if the end is near and our eyes are set in heaven, the eternity will come. 
What is most important in our life today is not to be distracted, to be drunk-minded, to be not clear-minded, but it is to be focused, to be clear, to recognize what is most important, your time with God. Your time with God. I, I was telling the men's group yesterday, I cannot vouch for you on the day of heaven. You guys get me? Like, I would like to vouch for you. I would like my best to say, oh, they were pretty good, Lord, right? They, you know, they showed up to church. God, come on. That's the best we got so far. I would love to, but I'm just a man. You know who's the only one that can vouch for you before the Heavenly Father? It's Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can vouch for you completely. And if you have no relationship to Jesus, doesn't matter what I say, guys. I can, I can, like, I can list a whole resume. I'll be like, no. I cannot vouch for you. You got to ask the question, am I really spending time with God? Have you really been in prayer? Or have you been distracted with work? Have you been distracted with projects? But there's so many things to do. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about that, that excuse. So many things to do. Whenever something huge comes up, you can drop everything, can't you? Something happens and it's big enough, you can drop it. If it can be dropped now, it can be dropped earlier. You just have to make the time for it. You have to say, this right here, my life before this, this is utmost important, my being with God. Some of you guys are thinking, that's kind of crazy. I don't know, man. I can try to fit God in a couple minutes here and there. No, guys. Be clear-minded. In the same line of argument, he says this, in our days, it's hard to live in self-control. We like to indulge and to satiate our appetites, and it becomes hard to say no to fleshly desires. Okay? We're supposed to be self, uh, clear-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. Because why? Appetites like sex, in order to feel affirmed and accepted. Appetites like drugs and alcohol, to ease emotional pain, to forget. Appetites like escaping to alternate realities, gaming, shows, TV, phones, whatever, you name it, to avoid what's happening now in real life. These appetites, they're not more sinful than the other. You know what the actual sin is? The actual sin is the fact that we go to those things rather than to God. That's the actual sin. That's the actual problem. Right? All those things are not one, one is more sinful than the other. The only issue, the biggest issue is that you would go to them rather than going to the one who saved you, who has loved you, who has known you. And the problem with that, and the problem that we that we that begins to happen when you do that, is that you begin to as you are engaging in these appetites, as you, as you are letting go of your self control, and you just kind of like going with the flow. The problem with these appetites is that after a while, it leaves you with this fear that my God can't possibly want me now or use me now, right? And so you stop praying altogether. You stop coming to Him. You stop seeking after Him because you're thinking. I'm just, I'm just damaged goods. I can't be used. I'm just, I'm just broken. He won't possibly use me. I can't possibly engage in this. And so you indulge more. Because that emptiness that you feel, you have to fill it with something. Instead of filling it with the one who was made for it, you fill it with what? All these other appetites. Leaving you to chase and chase and chase. But I want to tell you something. That, that, that fear that you have, it's a lie, by the way. It's, it's a whisper from Satan 
It's a whisper from the voices of this age. It's Satan telling you, you, he wants you to make you feel like you're disqualified from experiencing and being with God. But God desires nothing more than to see his people return. You get me? He desires nothing more than seeing his people return. And if you realize at this moment that these things have become, that you, that you have no longer self-control over these things, that you've actually been mastered by them and controlled by them, it's time to come back. The Bible calls that repentance. It's time to say, no more, oh God, here I am. I'm sorry what I've made these things to be. I'm sorry that I have not turned to you first, so here I am. The people in the Bible who made impact for God, can I tell you this? We're not the ones who have had the least amount of sin in their lives. Right? The people who made the most impact in the Bible were not the ones, were not the sons or daughters who had the least amount of sins. They were the sons and daughters who had repentant, humble, teachable heart. These were the sons and daughters. It's not about how far from holiness you are. Okay? That's not the point. It's not about how far from holiness you are. It's about being committed to growing and becoming like him. And when you decide to yourself, I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm going to commit, I am going to grow, I'm going to repent, turn back, and seek this process of growing, that is what God uses. That is a son and, God, a son and daughter that God uses. He looks for a heart that's willing to come back, not a heart that's just dancing around, indulging in whatever. When you seek to pray, to engage in God in a daily process of growth, you will find yourself growing into holiness. Peter is saying this. The end is near, church. The end is near, brothers and sisters. You got to live your, with your heart set on eternity. And set on eternity means that you got to be self, you got to be clear-minded. Not, stop being so distracted and self-controlled. Not being mastered by anything. So that, why? You can be with God. You got to be with God. That is the most important thing. You live with the eyes on eternity when you're willing to say to yourself, all I want is to be with him. To devote my time, my energy, my prayers with him. But here's the second thing. Look at verse 8. It says this. So that's the first thing. The end is near. Therefore, these are the things we're supposed to do. Be clear-minded, self-control. Number eight, above all, above all. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. If you set your eyes on eternity, you'll live a life of great love. You know what Christians are afraid of on Judgment Day? They're not afraid of Judgment Day. Christians know that they will stand before God forgiven because of what Christ has done. Not because of what they have done, because of what he has done for them. What Christians are most afraid of is to stand before the Lord of hosts, the Savior of the world, the one who loved them without condition, the one who picked them out of the, the mire, the mud and mire, the one who saved them while they were enemies of him, while they rejected him, while they didn't want him. Christians are afraid of realizing that they have spent their whole life ungrateful Ungrateful of that love because they have not exhibited that love to someone else. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of when they, they, they come to the realization, they stand before God, and they realize the overwhelming love that was 
given to them, the overwhelming grace, the overwhelming mercy that was poured into their life, and they think about these flashes of all the people in whom they have not shown the same love and grace. How ungrateful they have been before God, who have saved them, and yet they could not love their own brothers and sisters. They could not love and forgive those in the family of God. They could not let it go. The ungratefulness of their heart will begin to overwhelm them. That's the fear that's in them. And so Peter says, above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. See, the motive of Christians is if they're not afraid that Jesus will cast them out, what they will regret on that day, what you will regret on that day, is how petty you were towards people in your life. Like, you've been loved so much, and you're so petty with this tiny little issue, problem, that comes up between you and the brother. See, when there's trouble between two believers, the course of action is what? What should it be? Forgiveness. When, when, there's, when there's issues between a brother and a sister, brother and brother, sister and sister in the church, in the church family, the course of action should be forgiveness. To walk it out, to pray it out, to forgive one another, just as what? As Christ has forgiven you. There is possibly no sin that they have committed against you that you, that is worse than the sin you've committed against your father, right? There cannot possibly be a sin that they have done against you that is just or worse than the sin that you have committed against the father. So the course of action for a Christ-centered mindset is to forgive. It's to realize how can I be so petty about this fight when I've been forgiven this much? How can I possibly have sleepless nights over this issue, anger, turmoil, anxiety, worry, pain, over this when I've been forgiven the multitude, the magnitude, the infiniteness of this? I was meant to die before God. I was condemned to hell before God. And yet I was saved by his blood. How? By his life. That he gave his life for that. And here I am squabbling with a brother over this tiny little problem. The course of a Christian's life is to forgive. But let's say, let's say, let's say a brother sinned against you. They don't realize it's a sin. They, 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 just, they, they just fail to commit that it's a sin. What do you do? Well, I try. I try to work it out, but they, they just cannot see that it's a sin. You know what the Bible says to do? To bear it. In the scripture, it says it's the bearing of love for each other. You bear the love. You bear the love. Why? Not because of the brother. Not because of the sister. You bear the love because of the Savior. You bear the love because you recognize how much he bore for you. And though they may not, they, they may not outwardly say, yeah, I've wronged you or yeah, I'm sorry. And you know that's still wrong. It's still, you bear that love. You bear that unforgiveness. You bear it. That's why the Bible says what? It, is, it covers a multitude of sins. Love covers, when it says love here, it's not your love, by the way. It's not your love covers a multitude of sins. It's his love that covers a multitude of sins. 
It's the bearing of it. And I know that's so hard. You're thinking that, but just imagine, right? Imagine, imagine here you are, like, like, like let's say, um, you know, Seth comes in with a paper cut, you know. He's like, oh, my God, you know, he's such a whiner. So he comes in, like, oh, my God, Daddy, it hurts, it's a paper cut, right? And it's such a, such a small thing. It's big to him, but it's small, right? But then, then, but then imagine his mom coming, coming, coming in, right, and she's, like, missing a whole finger, right? All of a sudden, he's like, oh, this is nothing. This is nothing. In light of this, this is nothing. This is, this is just a scratch, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. His love covers a multitude of sins. What that means is here you are fighting with each other, angry with each other, not speaking to each other, on bad terms with one another, cold to each other, right? Here you are doing all these things, and you have forgotten the magnitude of love that covered your sins. And so when you are able to see that in eternity, what I said in eternity, just imagine you're stepping before God, right? And you just, just realizing the magnitude, the beauty, the awesomeness of who he is and just how much he actually loves you. The shame and the ungratefulness of your heart begins to pound as you realize, how could I not forgive so-and-so? How could I, how could I have been so petty over something like that? This love that was poured upon me, how could I have been so petty? I'm not downgrading your pain here, guys. I'm not, I'm not trying to downgrade your pain. I'm not saying that what was done to you, if something was done to you, is basically just let it go. What I'm saying here is see it in light of what? Christ. See it in light of Christ's love. Don't see it in light of your own because you're never going to be able to beat yourself. See it in light of Christ because that love can cover a multitude of sins. Right? And I think you understand it. I, th- I think you understand this without me telling you this, okay? Dog lovers. You guys dog lovers out there, right? You know your dogs does a lot of crazy things in the house, but yet somehow you're okay with them, right? They poo in your house. They pee in your house. They shed all over your home. They mess up your... But somehow you still have them. They're still, they're still there, you know? You haven't kicked them out. You haven't gotten rid of them. Why is that? Why is that? Because love, for some reason that you feel towards the dog, covers a multitude of sins. Isn't it? Right? The same way when it comes to children. Right? Children, you know, vipers and diapers, they say, right? Do a bunch of crazy things. And yet, somehow that love covers a multitude of their sins. So you have to have that eternity, eternal perspective. You guys follow? See, if, if, if the end is near... And you know you're going to stand before the Lord of heaven. You should live with great love. Great love. Not your love, his love. Covering a multitude of sins. Here's the third thing. Verse 9 says this. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. If the end is near, the lifestyle that we ought to have is to be with each other. We're going to need each other more than ever. We're going to need to be in each other's lives more than ever. And the life of hospitality is a lifestyle for the sons and daughters who have eternity in mind. In these days, as in the days of Peter, they're going to need each other. They have to have each other. They were being persecuted. They were being hunted down. 
They were being killed left and right. They needed each other. They needed to be in the comfort of the homes of one another. They needed to be there. There's something about opening your home, it's like a doorway to the heart. When you open your home to somebody, it's like you're opening your life and your heart to them. It's the attitude of saying this. When you, when you, when you offer hospitality, it's the attitude of saying, what's mine is yours. Okay, what's mine is yours. And whatever is yours, I will glory and be happy for you. But what, and whatever is mine, actually, belongs to God anyways. Right? Everything that I have is nothing in light of eternity. Okay? Imagine afraid of having people over because you're afraid of your carpets getting dirty. Right? Imagine having people over, afraid of having people over because you're afraid your floors are going to get scratched up. Right? You're afraid, you're afraid that your, your house is going to be ran amok. Imagine all those things. And, and, and then you stand before God on that day of eternity. And he said, but I have such nice floors, God. My house was kept in order, God. Everything was great. But you didn't love your brethren. You didn't open up their homes to them. It's radical to be hospitable, especially without grumbling. Especially without grumbling. And, and, and the thing is, to, to grumble in your heart is to say that what I really want is these things in my life. I don't want to open up my homes because I don't want them to just kind of use it and abuse it. I don't want to be uh, seen as like a, uh, to be taken advantage of. So you grumble. You grumble over and over. Like, oh, you don't deserve to come over to my house, or you don't deserve to come to my house, or you don't deserve to come to my house. Right? We have this attitude of we pick and we choose who we want to come over. Sometimes we're afraid to be hospitable because our house is what? It's not clean. Okay? We have that, you know, that mindset. Until everything is perfect, then I'll invite some people over. Okay? Let me tell you something okay, about that. Growing up in the, in the Christian church, I've never been over to people's houses, right? But my, uh, my youth pastor at that time, he rented a one-bedroom place, okay? Uh, and he invited me over. I remember I walked over to his house. His room... It's like this big, okay? It's this big. It's one bed. It has this tiny little table. And everywhere is just books. I'm like, I'm like walking on books as I'm walking to his room. I'm like, it's like, Steve, where do you want me to sit? Just sit in that book over there. So I'm just, I'm just sitting here. We're just chilling. But you know what's crazy about that? You know what's crazy about that? This, this, this mess of a room, right, that he showed me? Because I didn't even care about the room, right? What was most important was his time that he opened up to have with me. Even in that place. And you know what? That's why I like, from there, that's why I actually like having actual books in my house. Like, you know, like uh, a lot of people try to convert me over to Kindle. I, I bought it, right? But I just, I just, I have a hard time having one. I mean, it's nice, it's convenient, it's, you know, it's productive, I guess, right? But I like having those books. And I think a lot of it, it has to do with the fact that I was, my heart was much open to another brother because I sat on books surrounded in his rooms, right? They, they, had, they conveyed something beautiful, something loving, something connective to me. Something on the Kindle does not do that, right, at all, right? I'll read for a while and I'll say, I forget, let me, let me get another book, right? I'll, and I'll t- toss it away, right? If you have this mindset where I can't invite anybody over, everything is perfect, let me tell you something. Just put yourself in the corner. Just dust off whatever you think is dirty. Call somebody over. Watch a movie. Eat a pizza. It's going to be beautiful. 
No one matters. Especially if you're a couple, invite a single kid over. I guarantee you, your house, if you think it's dirty, it cannot be as dirty as their house, right? So they're just like, or their room at least. They're like, oh, this is so clean, right? This is amazing to them, you know? Wow, you have your own bathroom. That's amazing. You know, like they're going to be thinking like all these other things. They're not going to be thinking like, oh, look at that. Look at that dust there right there. And they're, like, oh, they're not going to do that. That's not how they work, okay? It's radical to be hospitable, right? And I know this may sound ordinary to you, but in the end, it will not be. To open your house to somebody is to open your heart to, to it's, it's an attitude of your heart. It's a lifestyle of your heart that you tell, you're, you're telling God, everything I have, Lord, it belongs to you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not grumbling over what they take or don't take. It does not matter because everything is, belongs to you anyways. It's all yours. So who am I to say, this is mine? Who am I to cling on to this? Who am I to say, no, you cannot, who am I? I am nothing. Everything I have is yours. The, the ability to even have that home comes from you. The grace that was offered to have it comes from you. So why do I cling on to it as if it belongs to me? I can't take it with me. You can't take it with you. You know that. Some of you guys thinking like, but I, my, my, my house is kind of like, it's too small. It's, doesn't, it just, it's just kind of weird. No one, listen, guys. It's your heart that's being opened. All right? It's your heart that you're opening up to somebody else. Loving each other earnestly from the heart and with our homes is an end-time lifestyle without which you cannot survive. You cannot survive. You know, I had a, my wife has a cousin who has a, uh, what's the thing? She has a, Hallucinations, I think. Yeah, she has manic hallucinations. I don't know why, right? And her husband, husband, is a, he doesn't want anyone to come over. Not because of her, just because he thinks the house is just dirty. And, you know, every time we come over, though, it makes her feel better. And she asked him many times, hey, let's just open our homes to people. He says, no, we can't. How can we do this? Look at this. This place is a mess. It's rotting everywhere. There's mold everywhere, Right? And then, you know, when Trish and I come over, we hang out, we have to play board games, whatever. They had a great time, and it makes her feel better. It makes her, so, and, and, and we ask her, or she asks us, like, so how often do you have people over? I'm like, I think every day, right? The house, the house is not a house unless someone's over there, you know? And he, she always says, I wish, I wish that would be mine, too. I said, like, why can't it be? It's because my husband thinks it's too, uh, too dirty. no. Like, don't, don't you, aren't you happy when you guys, when we come over? It's like, yeah, because we know you won't judge us. Nobody will judge you. Right? It's in your mind. So whoever it is you're hanging out with, by the way, too. Right? A heart that's set on eternity, guys, is to say, look at this. This is not mine. This couch is not mine. This TV, not mine. Right? This floor is not mine. This roof is not mine. What's mine is yours. I want to bless you with it. I want to serve you with it. I want to make a pathway to our lives so that you can have a pathway to Christ. You guys follow? Okay? This is the last one right here. Verses 10 and 11. Each, of you, each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in his various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.
with the end in mind. You're living your life set for eternity. Life set for, you should, one, you should have a life of great prayer, a life of great love, a life of great hospitality, and lastly, a life of great service. Of great service. Gifts of various grace. All of us, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been given a gift. It's a gift that you've been, either it's, if it's prophesying, in Romans 12 it says prophesy. Prophesying is what? Proclaiming God's word. If you have a gift to be able to teach God's word, proclaim God's word, then use it. Don't just sit quietly. Don't just say, oh, no, it's not for me. Right? Use it. Secondly, if, you're, if your gift is to serve, then serve. What does that look like? Greet people. Cook. Send cards. Help drive those who can't. Clean up. Set up. Close down. Prayer. Nursery. Security. Any of these things are service. All of these gifts are meant to be service to edify and to bless those around you. You give yourself to them. You give yourself unto this. How crazy is it as you come to a place and all you can think about is what I receive. When you come to church on Sunday, it's not what you receive, it's what you're supposed to give. Right? You're going to get God's word. You're going to, it's supposed to strengthen you, nourish you, nurture you, so that you can go out and continue to give. Continue to use your gift for the giving of others. But when you come to church and your mindset, your mindset is like, well, I can't listen to PT right now. He's going too long. Or I can't listen to him. too many examples or not enough examples, too preachy, not preachy enough. When you come with all of these excuses and you're thinking, just feed me, just give me what I want, right, you're coming to the wrong place because you are here. With the end time in mind, you are here to use your life as a gift unto others. Your actions, your thoughts, your service is a gift unto others. Teaching, right? If you can teach, then teach. Encouraging. Let me, let me, let me, I looked up encouraging because this is my worst one, okay? Encouraging, okay? Biblical encouragement isn't focused on complimenting someone. Oh, I like your hair. That's not, that's not the encouragement that what the Bible talks about, Right? It's important, you should, you should, you know, if their hair looks nice, you should say something. But, but the encouragement that the scripture referred to is explicitly Christian encouragement. You know what that is? It's done with the hopes that it will lift someone's heart towards the Lord. It points out the evidence of grace in someone's life to help them see that God is using them. It points them to God's promises that assures them that all they face is under control. When you encourage someone, Christian encouragement is meant to help them point more to God, right? Not simply, oh, you're, you're so kind. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. I appreciate that, right? But you know, it's like this. Hey, you know that Bible study lesson, small group leader? I really, I was really blessed by that. Thank you so much for bringing God's word that day. You know how many times a small group leader thinks that the imposter syndrome that they shouldn't be teaching? And they, they probably prepare the message an hour before, right? And they're thinking, Lord, I'm unworthy, and yet somehow God still uses that, right? And then when you come up and you say thank you for that, it encourages them. It encourages them to do what? Not to be lazy some more, but to remind themselves this word has real power. And it continues to move them, right? That's biblical encouragement. That's Christian encouragement. Gifts, like giving to others. Generosity. You live as if 
the finances isn't really yours. And it really isn't yours, by the way. Right? What God has given to you, it is meant, like I shared last week, it is meant for you to use. God has given you the ability to give. Because why? Because he knows there are people out there who cannot lift themselves out of poverty, out of this place without a hand of grace to help them. Right? Just like you were unable to lift yourself out of the mires of sin and death if not for the hand of Jesus Christ to pull you out. So your gift of generosity, your giving, is meant to do what? It's to recognize, hey, I know you can't do this on your own. I'm not trying to, be, uh, I'm not trying to pity you. I'm not trying to think. I'm, I just want to be there to bring you out. This is what God has gifted me to do. But we can't think like that. We don't, we don't think like that. We don't have eternity in mind. You guys realize that? We don't, if, we, if you're not thinking about eternity, about what the gift was meant to be, you guys are going to be like, oh, this is mine. I'm going to hoard it, right? My service is only to those that actually benefits me, right? I'm only going to teach if I get something out of it. I'm only going to teach if it's convenient for me. Leadership is another gift, right? Some of you guys are called to lead, but you sit passively. You sit passively because for some reason you don't want to take on the responsibility. I have a colleague of mine in a different church. This is, what, this is the saddest thing he always says. Everyone has an opinion, but nobody wants to take responsibility. He said, he's like, everyone has an opinion of what to do with this thing. And then when I ask him, okay, cool, who's going to take responsibility? Nope, not me. But you should do it this way. Whoever's in charge should do it that way, Right? Well, you know what you should do? You should take charge and lead. You should take charge and lead. If you have the opinion of why things are so wrong, then then it must be in your heart that God has placed it there for you to do something about it, not to critique it, but to actually stand in and do something, right? How often are we just passive, just sitting there? Oh, it's not for me. I can't do it. Do you know why you, you, you stay passive, by the way? You stay passive, again, it's because your eyes are not set on eternity. Your eyes are set on what's convenient for you at this time. I do not want to step up into leadership because it's inconvenient for me. I don't want to step up and use the gift that God has bestowed upon me for the gifting and the blessing of others because at this moment it feels inconvenient for me. It becomes about you when the gift that was given to you was meant to be for Others. How foolish, how arrogant, how ungrateful is our mindset when all we can think about is this time and not set our minds for eternity. The point is to use your gifts for others, specifically for the body of Christ. Set your eyes on eternity and live with great service. Church, my plea to you is this. You know, we can be a church where we got about, like, you know, 10% of the leaders doing all the work for you. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's great. Or you can be a church where the body functions together, serving, blessing, giving, loving, opening our homes, opening our lives for the blessings of others, praying, a church that prays, a church that prays. My goodness. To beg you to come to pray is crazy. I shouldn't, I shouldn't make this like a... 
like a mandatory meeting. I, sh- I shouldn't have said all these weird things to say, you got to come out. It should be a natural rhythm of your Christian life to pray. I'm distracted. I got things to do. There's so many things that are involved. This and that. Be clear-minded, church, so that you can pray. Be self-controlled, church, so that you can pray. Above all, love one another. Bear the sin that the person will not forgive you for. Bear the sin that the the person will not acknowledge their sins in. Bear with them because of the love of Christ who bared his love upon you. Live with great hospitality. Opening your homes because it doesn't belong to you. Knowing that it doesn't belong to you. Having a mindset that this is not mine. You can't take this with you. That everything you have, you hold it with open hands and says, hey, what's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. And a service to use your gift. Everyone in our church should be serving. You shouldn't just sit there and like wait for somebody to tell me what I can and cannot. You should be serving. Right? Like, okay, well, I don't know what, to, I need to give a responsibility. Look, there's trash everywhere. Pick it up. That's serving, right? We have this coffee thing that no one usually likes to take away. Put it away, right? If you see it, do something. Instead of just walking past or waiting to be asked or told, I need to be given a responsibility for me to do something. No. You have been given hands, you've been given feet to just do something. Go and serve the people around you. We have a nursery. Right now, my kids right now and all the kids are there just watching a movie. You know why they're watching a movie right now? Because there's no teachers to teach them right now. Right? That's fine. This is surviving. No, man, I would like our kids to know some biblical stuff while their brothers, sisters, mom and dads are here learning the word of God. How foolish is it? I'm learning the word of God, but let's just leave it up to fate for what they, you know, take in in their lives every Sunday. It should not be a nag and a pull for service. It should be an offering that you say, here I am. Here I am. Use me. Eternity, I can't. Use me. 